I would love for you to turn to Matthew 13. I'm going to start there, and I'll just give you a warning. I'm going to be kind of all over the place since we're doing a little bit of a topical series, Uh, but I'll end in Philippians 4, so you can kind of meet me there at the end. But we'll start at uh, Matthew 13. While you're getting there, we started this new series, How to Build a Church. We were working our way through the book of Luke, and we're going to come back to that at some point in the future. Uh, but we are just engaging with this idea. How, how, how do we become the church? How do we build the church? What is the church? What is God doing in the church? And if you weren't here last week, I do encourage you to go back to the audio file on our website and listen to it. Uh, it, it it's ready to be put up, and I will put it up for you today. Um, Because if you weren't here, we talked about some directional shifts in our church in the first maybe 15 minutes of our time together, and I just would love for you to be aware of those. Um, But I'm eager to see the way that God continues to build our church, not necessarily through programs or buildings, that's not primarily our goal, but through the maturation of his people as God builds the body of Christ in you, in your heart, in your life, in our community. Um, But I want to clarify one thing from last week before I pray. I got this email this week, and it was very good. And so I want to read it to you and, uh, and then share a thought with you. Here's what it says. I may be mistaken or have misunderstood, but it is my understanding that you used love as the mark of Christian maturity. If someone possesses love for God and love for neighbor, they would be spiritually mature. The only reason I bring this up is because I feel that this idea slightly undermines some of the core values of Maricopa Springs. I would not disagree if you had said that love is the greatest mark of maturity among other important marks. Ephesians 4 says that one mark of maturity is that people aren't like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I would contend then that the depth of biblical and theological knowledge is also a mark of maturity. Here's another significant passage that teaches the same, Hebrews 5. About this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. This person then goes on to write in the email, I think biblical and theological knowledge is both a part of the process of growth and an indication of maturity. And I imagine that you would affirm that as well. It just seems that so many Christians are stagnant in loving God with all of their mind and need to be challenged to grow in biblical and theological depth. This person then concludes by saying, I believe that there are a number of marks of maturity beyond love and biblical theological knowledge. We we should also include trust and faith, obedience, spiritual reproduction, serving the body, the other fruits of the Spirit, to name a few. I really appreciate our relationship and the comfort with which I feel addressing a subject that I may have a different perspective. I want to share this email with you because this is so good. This is such a great email, and it is absolutely right on. And uh, I I challenge you from time to time to make sure that you are also reading your Bible, not just listening to Grady, 
Because if I say something that's out of line with Scripture, how are you going to know unless you are consuming it yourself? Now, I, I don't necessarily think that what I said last week was wrong. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But I overstated my position. Love is an excellent mark of maturity in the life of the Christian. But if you heard me say it is the only mark of maturity in the life of a Christian, that was wrong. So I loved this email. Um, I, I love the feedback. I love that I have people in my church who can keep me honest. That is powerful and important, and you should be proud that you belong to a church like that. Um, so uh, mature, love needs to undergird the entire, entire Christian life for sure, but it needs to be accompanied by growth in other areas. And this is why, again, it's crucial that you yourself be a student of God's word, not just somebody who attends church and hears it from the pastor. All right, with that sort of apology, I guess you could say, let me pray. Lord, what a good and gracious God you are. We just come into your presence filled with joy, just absolutely ecstatic that you have allowed us to come before you, to worship you, to gather together. What a privilege that is. We thank you for the beauty of your creation. We thank you for some relief from the relentless heat. We thank you for the months ahead of us in the fall and the winter. We thank you for this body of believers to worship you. We thank you for the truth that Doug spoke to, that our hearts beat in sync with your hearts because of our faith in your son and what he did for us on the cross. And Lord, we worship you this morning. We pray that you would fill us with joy, that you would give us just the tiniest taste of heavenly joy as we study this topic through your word this morning. And let it not be a momentary taste that's only here as we're at church, but let it endure with us throughout the week so that we know what a wonderful privilege it is to be found in Christ. So bless us this morning, we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, hopefully you're there, verse 44, it says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What a great illustration of the kingdom of heaven. The Christian life is often marked by duty. If you've been walking it for any period of time, you know this. Our duty to love one another, our duty to obey, our duty to follow after Christ, our duty to serve, just to name a few. But the duty that defines the Christian life has at its core this inexpressible joy that comes from finding such a great and glorious treasure in Christ. Where God is in the process of building his church, we find a people whose hearts are near bursting with the joy of the treasure that they found in Jesus. And if we're going to do a series on how to build the church, and we're going to look at the various building blocks which God uses to construct the body of Christ, then we have to talk about the overwhelming joy which the Holy Spirit gives to those of us who believe. Because I think it is central to who we are as a people. And unfortunately, unfortunately, too often Christians are dour, aren't they? They're grim. As if they feel that by giving their life to Jesus, they've actually given something up rather than gained everything. And yet in truth, the Christian gains not only eternal life in the presence of God, that's the future hope that we believe in, but we 
enjoy the nature of that reality, the joy of Christ, which permeates and infuses our life, even here and now, with this enduring experience of joy. Whatever the circumstances of life may bring, we are defined by this marker. There's a wonderful quote by a guy named Robert Rainey. He was the principal of New College in Scotland. And one of his students once observed that she believed that every night when he slept, he actually went to heaven because every day he was so joyful. How could it be any other way? But Robert Rainey said of Christian joy, he said this, Joy is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Isn't that so great? Let me say that again. Joy is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Brothers and sisters, I I think a sure sign that God is building his church is that believers have an increasing and overflowing sense of joy in Christ Jesus. Maybe you've heard it uh, said that the shortest verse in the Bible, you probably know what it is. Jesus wept, right? John 11, 35. Well, interestingly enough, if we were to open our Bibles in Greek and look at that verse, it's not the shortest verse in the Bible. In fact, the shortest verse in the Bible is 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always in Greek. Now, can you see the incredible connection between the two shortest verses, although it's slightly obscure? Think about this. Jesus wept, therefore we rejoice always. God himself entered into our mourning, our weeping, our sadness, so that we might be able to always rejoice in the work of Christ. And again, I say, where God is building his church, there you find in Christians an increasing and awesome sense of joy in what God is doing through his son Jesus. Joy is a gift that God gives to us to build his church up, and he gives it, I think, in several different ways, okay? So I'm going to touch on those ways, but before I want to touch on how God does that in a couple of different ways, I want to just make one point clear. I think that if you were to do a thorough study of the word joy in Scripture, that you would find, especially in the New Testament, that joy is as much of an action as it is a feeling, Joy is indeed a feeling, but it's not only a feeling. Joy is also an action. Even when Paul writes in Philippians 4.4, we're going to end up there, rejoice always. He is not telling us to conjure up feelings of being happy and joyful. I mean, think about the darkest moments of your life. Who could possibly obey that command through some of the things that we suffer in life where feelings of happiness elude us? So Paul must mean more than that. Paul is commanding that we act in joy, that we put into action an effort of our hearts to turn our faces to God and receive the reassuring warmth of his joy, whatever circumstances may befall us in life. And I think this is important as we start because I'm going to talk about joy, and I'm absolutely positive that there are some of you in this room this morning who don't feel joy right now. Whatever it is that you're going through, life has made it difficult for you to feel joy. And I want you to understand that that's, that's okay. That's an okay position for the Christian to be in. You're not deficient in your relationship with God if you don't feel joy. Sometimes life has seasons of weeping and mourning, yet we have this constant hope 
that God will eventually turn our mourning into joy. But I do want you to understand that so far as joy is an action that we can do with our lives, so far as joy is a blessing that God bestows upon us as he builds his church, so long as joy is a truth that we receive from Christ as a benefit of his grace and mercy, then all of us as Christians are called to live and act in joy, to choose that however we feel. Even when the feeling escapes us, we can choose always to rejoice that because Jesus wept, we can actually know the joy of Christ, even in our weeping, even in our mourning. And as God produces the fruit of the Spirit in us, joy then ends up being part of the outpouring of God's work in our hearts, both the action and the feeling in time are joyous praise unto God. And so if you're in that place, I just want to encourage you, press on. Press on in your efforts to seek this treasure, the greatest treasure found in the face of Christ. And I do believe that in time, the Spirit will produce the fruit of joy in your life. It will be so much more than a feeling, although that will be a part of it. We can be sure of that. So with that groundwork laid, I want to do just kind of a a quick flyover. I mean, This is always the problem with preaching, teaching, is like you take on a topic, and I mean, I could probably preach for a year on joy, but no, I've got like 20 minutes. So the best I can do is give you a flyover of some things that God talks about when it comes to joy through his word. Uh, I'm going to be all over the place in the New Testament, so again, if you want to get ready in Philippians 4.4, eventually I'll meet you there. First, we find that God establishes his joy in our lives through relationships. I don't know if you've ever heard people who say, well, I'm a Christian, I just don't like to go to church. Like, my head explodes when I hear that. It just does not compute to me. Christians are people who have joy in relationship. Last night, we had this racial forum here in the room uh, and it was, it was wonderful. I, I really enjoyed being part of it. And it was so cool to feel the joy in the room when we got to the end of this conversation as different people from various backgrounds, different cultural settings, different races and ethnicities uh, expressed their love for one another in the context of community. I mean, there was joy in relationship, and it was a beautiful thing. Christians are people who know joy in the context of relationship. This is a completely logical step for us. If you were with us here last week as we talked about love, maturity manifests itself in love for one another. If one of the marks of Christian maturity is love for God and love for others, that affection for one another will inevitably manifest itself in joyful relationships. How privileged we are that God has made his people, the church, a community where together we share in the joy of the Lord that he has bestowed upon us. That's such a precious thing. And joy, I think, joy needs to be shared to find its fulfillment. And relationships provide us the opportunity to share our joy in Christ and give him greater glory in that. The Bible reveals that the friendship and brotherhood that we experience as Christians, it's, it's actually a source of joy for us. Like God flows his joy in being in relationship with him through his people in the relationships we have with one another. Maybe we could say that our relationships with one another are an extension of the joy that we have in God. 
But however we think about it, Scripture shows us that God actually builds his church through the joyful relationships we have with one another. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 through 20, we find these words. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Let me read that again. Paul writes, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Man, how deeply I feel these words as a pastor. Truly, I I got up here and said, I love you. It's good to see you guys this morning. Truly, as a pastor, how deeply I feel these words. Great joy, great glory in Jesus Christ in the work that he is doing in you as you are part of this church. And in the context, Paul's talking about how much he longs to be with his brothers and sisters of the church in Thessalonica. The work that God has done in them and through them causes his heart to well up with these feelings of just elation at what God is doing. And what a wonderful experience of joy it is to see God at work in the lives of our friends, the lives of the people that we know in love, the lives of those around us who share in the body of Christ. So that even at times when we don't feel joy ourselves, we can still look to and enter into the joy that God is giving others in our relationships, sharing with them in the work that God is doing in their lives. Think about how difficult, nay impossible, the Christian walk would be without community. How gloomy the Christian life would be if it was made in isolation and independence without friendships, without the beauty of our communal sense of joy in Christ. And so let me encourage you in this. I just want to encourage you, find people in this church, brothers and sisters in the Lord for whom you can echo these words of Paul. You are our glory and joy. And I understand good friends are hard to come by. I mean, I I struggle with this. It is difficult. That process takes time, and I'm usually not patient. But surely, as God builds our church, there must be people in this room with whom you can share your joy. As God builds our church, may we move beyond the superficial relationships of Sunday morning church into this triumphant exclamation of Paul, you are our glory and joy. Next, we examine the Christian experience of joy in worship. Have you ever set your foot in a church where the people there, as they worship and express their love for God, do so in a manner that feels only slightly better than torture? Have you ever experienced a church like that? The joyless, lifeless expression of a church where people have never learned to truly plumb the depths of the riches of God's grace and love, poured out for his people through the blood of Christ. God's love for us and his act of saving us should cause our hearts to well up with songs of joyful praise to God through whatever season of life we may find ourselves in. We have been redeemed, and that is good news of great joy, the angels proclaimed. God's faithfulness and his grace should cause nothing less than the fullness of our lives to be a daily exercise in joyfully proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of the darkness and into his glorious light. 
so that all that we are, all that we do, all that we think and say becomes a joyful act of worship to God. That is what the Christian life is. It's not a Sunday morning set of praise songs. Rather, it is a life of rejoicing in Christ Jesus. Luke, he concludes his gospel with these short verses. Again, we'll get there in like 10 years. It says, And they worshipped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So Jesus ascends into heaven with this promise that he will return. And the immediate response of his disciples is to worship God with great joy at the wonderful news that Christ will come again. And their joy continued on day by day as they gathered together. They blessed God. They gave him honor and praise and glory at the joy that they had found in the revelation of God in the face of Christ. And would that the church of Jesus would shed its somber lifelessness, its fear of man, so that the world is then forced to notice the inexplicable joy of the people of God as we praise him, not just with our, with our mouths, but with our hearts and our lives and our very being. What greater joy is there than the heartfelt worship of Christ the Lord, our God and our Savior? Jonathan Edwards, he's a little bit heady. I should have put this quote up on the screen, but I didn't, so I will just read it slowly for you, and you can kind of marinate in this. He says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Or if you prefer a simpler quote, I think John Piper says it well, God is most glorified when, in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we are joyful in him, God receives glory. It's amazing how Piper can do that with, uh, with Jonathan Edwards and just simplif- simplify it. But when the heart expresses the joy it has through Jesus, it comes out in true spiritual worship. God is greatly glorified when Christians are deeply satisfied in him. But we need to understand, too, that joy is not always tied to positivity for the Christian. Remember, joy is more than a feeling. Yes, often it is a feeling, and that's a wonderful gift from God, but it is so much more than that, too. God, in his goodness, in his goodness, please understand, ordains that in some seasons of our lives, We must anchor our souls in the joy of the Lord even as the waves of suffering and hardship threaten to drown us in despair. And for the Christian, joy finds its perfection in suffering. And this is for our good because God loves us. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we find these words. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. As Christians, we must expect that as God builds his church, we will suffer in that process. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will experience suffering as God brings in the fullness of his kingdom into our hearts and our lives, as he prunes sin from our lives and refines us for his glory. And so let us not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us, when God tests us to let us prove that our faith is genuine and our love for him sincere. Here the Apostle Peter, he tells us that suffering should actually lead us to joy. Now we dare not think that he means by this that we're actually supposed to enjoy the suffering itself. Okay, I think that that's twisted. It's, it's masochistic. It's not biblical. Not even Jesus enjoyed what he had to suffer. He looked forward to something greater, something better just past the suffering, but he didn't look joyfully at the suffering itself. He looked at what it would produce. And what we see here in 1 Peter is that our joy in suffering, it's rooted in a greater reality. Whatever we suffer for the sake of Christ can be borne with great endurance and joyful praise even. Because we know that in the revealing of the glory of Christ Jesus, which follows closely after this, our momentary affliction will appear fully and finally light, easy, in the face of Christ. It will pass, and we will have him in his fullness. So I don't need to rejoice in the suffering itself. Rather, I rejoice in the final product that the suffering produces in me. Learning to rejoice in the Lord always, regardless of my circumstances. I imagine that the goldsmith finds very little pleasure, little joy in the laborious process of smelting down the gold, forming it into a beautiful setting for the diamond that it will one day hold. But all of the heat, all of the labor of the crafting and shaping, it's more than worth it in the end, isn't it? Because of the beauty of the ring that exudes when it has finally become fully ready to be the setting for the glorious light of the diamond with which it will radiate its brilliance. Again, Jonathan Edwards, he says it so well. This knowledge of God is that which is above all others, sweet and joyful. Men have a great deal of pleasure in human knowledge, in studies of natural things, but this is nothing to that joy which arises from this divine light shining into the soul. This light gives a view of those things that are immensely the most exquisitely beautiful and capable of delighting the eye of the understanding. This spiritual light is the dawning of the light of glory in the heart. There is nothing so powerful as this to support persons in affliction and to give the mind peace and brightness in this stormy and dark world. In this sense, the joy of the Lord is our strength through trials and suffering. It's more than a feeling. It's a choice whereby we believe with faith and with confidence in the goodness and the mercy of God his victory over sin, and his lordship in all things. And we trust with steadfastness of heart that he will lead us through what we suffer for our good and for his glory. And so we choose then to rejoice in the future reality that we will see the 
Glory of the Lord in Christ Jesus, who has overcome the world through his death and resurrection. And what a beautiful thing that is, isn't it? Then in this sense, I think we also have to touch on the joy of obedience that belongs to the Christian. The joy of obedience. Let me ask you in your mind, do you associate joy and obedience? To choose joy through suffering is an act of obedience. It is one act of many that we must labor to be faithful to in our calling to follow Christ. For God builds his church through the obedience that produces joy. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Obedience and suffering, they go hand in hand. They're two flowers born on the same stem of life. Why were the prophets persecuted? Because they stood firm for the purposes of God in the face of man's rebellion against him. And the Christian life is a life of obedience against pressure to conform from at least two angles. Pressure to conform to worldliness. First, there's the pressure of the sinful human nature that comes from inside of us that tempts us to do what the flesh desires. Do you know this struggle? But have you ever noticed that when you cave to temptation and sin, along with your integrity, you also lose your joy? When we choose the lesser, lesser pleasure of sin over the greater pleasures of God, we not only forfeit our character, but we forfeit our joy. Obedience is hard, but it anchors our hearts firm and secure within the joy of Christ. And where sinful disobedience prevails, what we see is that joy flees and the human heart becomes corrupt and despondent and craves more and more freedom to find what it's seeking without ever actually doing so. And so again, brothers and sisters, I implore you, choose obedience in your hearts, not only because it honors God and brings him glory, but because in conformity to the image of Christ, we find a deep and lasting joy. The true joy, which sin always promises us but never manages to deliver. Okay, but there's also a pressure to abandon obedience because of the pressures that come from without. We see many churches, I think, today taking this path in many ways, and it makes me sad. One of those is choosing, just as an example, to abandon the historic Christian faith, to redefine human sexuality in godless ways, because to do anything other than that will come at a great cost for a church. And in time, what we see is these churches, they perish. As God's blessing and his favor leaves them without illumination and without joy because of their idolatry. And the point here is that Christians are to find joy and gladness in obedience to Christ and nothing less. Is there joy in your heart when you're obedient to Jesus? We find this joy and gladness because we understand that in sacrificing everything that the world offers in order for us to gain Christ, we have actually lost nothing and gained everything, haven't we? Our reward is great in heaven where an eternal weight of glory has been set aside for us, where joy is poured out upon the people of God in limitless quantities. And we know that in comparison 
to being with God forever, this life has nothing for us. And so even as we strive and suffer to obey Christ against pressures and temptations, we have great joy as God builds his church into a faithful, loving people of God who love his righteousness more than anything else. Finally, even as we seek to obey God despite the difficulties that come from our faithfulness, we have an unmistakable joy that the world cannot understand and cannot disparage. The world must see our unmistakable joy. Even as we stand against the current of culture which says that the happiness of man is found in license and freedom and debauchery, autonomy, and human self-glorification, we stand against that. The world seeks for joy in these things and comes up empty time and time again. And yet the Christian abandons them and finds joy unquenchable a treasure hidden in a field so precious that we trade everything else in order to have it. And our joy in opposition to the idols of our culture, it proves the truth of our Christian message. Have you seen that in your life? As people that you know wonder how you could possibly be joyful in the circumstances you're going through when they have tried so hard to find joy in so many empty things and still come up with empty hands. God builds his church as a timeless testimony that the ways of God are good and right for the human creature and that rebellion against God leads to sorrow and emptiness and death. William Barclay said, Men need to discover the lost radiance of the Christian faith. In a worried world, the Christian should be the only man who remains serene. In a depressed world, the Christian should be the only man who remains full of life. Now Philippians 4, verse 4 through 8, it says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Notice how he says it twice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Again, Paul tells us twice, rejoice in the Lord. And there's no way that your mind could be fixed on these things in verse 8 and not feel an overwhelming sense of joy bubbling up from your soul. Let our lives be so filled with this rejoicing and with the things of God that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent so that people see our peace and feel the overflow of our joy and cannot deny the truth of our Christian faith experientially. It's sad to me that so many Christians today think that the best testimony of their Christian faith is that they blend in and they be accepted by the culture, to be palatable, to be camouflaged, to not not upset or hurt or offend people. And so churches then labor to make their events and their services so appealing 
to non-Christians to, in some ways, even hide the name of Jesus and the meaning of the cross, to remove anything that might offend or cause envy or strife to those who are outside of the body of Christ. And I'm not suggesting we go to the other extreme and be intentionally antagonistic. Never. Let us not do that either. But the world should notice our unmistakable joy, our uncompromising obedience, our unshakable confidence, our unrelenting satisfaction in Christ regardless of our suffering. And the world should wonder in awe at what in God's name is wrong with us, that our joy is so untouchable and our treasure so precious to us. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. As God builds our church, may we be a people who hold a great treasure of joy in Christ Jesus. May our spiritual joy permeate our relationships here at Maricopa Springs as we together partake of the body and blood of Christ. May our lives overflow in joyful worship as we are filled with the Spirit of God. May our joyful suffering bring glory to God as we look forward to a greater reality in the resurrection of Christ. May our hearts be filled with overflowing joy as we offer up to God lives of faithful obedience to his word regardless of the cost. And may the world look to our church with wonder and bewilderment as they see our persistent and unmistakable joy in Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, give us this joy, I pray. Lord, your word tells us in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit, one of those, is joy. And what that means is that we're not to seek joy, but we are people who have joy in the power of the Holy Spirit by the work of your Son, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would manifest this joy in our lives, manifest it in our hearts. Let it be a feeling, but let it be more than that. Let it be an action. Lord, teach us to turn our eyes to you and away from worthless things so that as we gaze upon the glory of your Son, Jesus, that we are filled with joy. And Lord, I pray truly that this would be a church where when people walk through the doors, they wonder what in the world is going on here that these people are so ecstatic. That when people come into our homes and they meet our families, that when people fellowship with us around our table, that when they interact with us at the lunch table, at work, or at school, when they interact with us when we go out to the grocery store or we drive down the road, they would wonder what in the world is wrong with us that we have joy when everybody else seeks it but cannot find it. Lord, I pray that our joy would be a testimony to the truth of your word and that it would point people to Christ. God, would you do this work in us? Would you make us a joyful people as you build our church, I pray. Amen.